Hi everyone, welcome back to the STEM Equity Network podcast series. This is a series of weekly interviews with STEM professionals, that is, scientists, technologists, engineering and mathematicians, professionals and leaders, where we go through their experience and thoughts on equity in STEM positions, particularly equity in leadership positions. And today we're really, really fortunate to have the Head of Department for Immunology and Infectious Diseases at John Curtin School of Medical Research at Australian National University, ANU. David Chucky began his research career in the University of Adelaide, studying the interactions between the immune system and herpes simplex virus. Um, after his PhD, he worked in postdoc positions at Oxford University and Imperial College London in the UK. He's worked on projects related to viral pathogenesis and vaccine design. Following this, he moved to the US at the NIH, where he focused on understanding how the immune system recognises viruses and vaccines. Returning to Australia, he first started working at QIMR in Brisbane before starting his own lab and undertaking undergraduate teaching in the former Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at ANU. Since then, he's received a Young Tall Poppy Award and has held an NHMRC Career Development Award as well as ARC Future Fellowship grants. In 2016, he moved his laboratory across the campus to John Curtin School of Medical Research and has recently been appointed the Head of Department for Immunology and Infectious Diseases. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a privilege to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks. So, David, can you take us through your career from where you started and how you ended up being the head of department? Sure. So maybe given this is an equity podcast, I should point out that all of my supervisors and mentors have been men. (laughs) Um, From my PhD, my postdoc supervisors, except for uh, briefly when I first um, moved across to the John Curtin School when my head of department was Corolla Binwaiser. But apart from that, in fact, all of my mentors have looked like me. They've all been white men. Um, <laughs> it doesn't bode well so far, does it? <laughs> look, I think, I think it's just important that we recognise that this is how the world is, you know, and I certainly haven't identified particularly with all of my mentors, but I've learned something from all of them. One of the things that I think's helped me a lot in my career is that I've worked for people who work differently, they do their science differently. And I've learned to respect that you can be successful in science by approaching problems differently, by running your lab in different ways. And I like to think that the way that I run my lab now is a result of positive lessons, but also some negative lessons that I learned seeing the impact of the way that some people run their labs. So I best not go into the full story of my my PhD at this point. But my earliest memories were that the lab that I joined as an honours student, in fact, there was always a belief that we could do big things, that we were as good as anyone in the world, and everyone was encouraged to contribute ideas. That's the way I felt about it. Mm-hmm. I was a reasonably bolshy young student. I've always been happy to open my mouth and say what I think. It was a fairly brutal environment, though. There was teaching by bullying, frankly. For example, we did a journal club exercise as an honours student, And what was done to the two of us was that we were given photocopies of papers and the papers had actually been doctored. Right. So that there were specific errors in figures, you know, so basically we were set up because we weren't told. I wasn't as smart as the other honours student who didn't trust anyone and he actually went to the library 
and saw the original. So he knew what the game was, but I had absolutely no idea. So I was there basically saying, this text doesn't match what I see in the figure. And it was a PNAS paper, a seminal PNAS paper. And I had the postdoc, or say it wasn't a postdoc, a senior student in the lab going, really? Are you saying that Rock and Fraser got it wrong? That's, that's the sort of teaching environment that I started in. <laughs> and I don't think it's a, it's a helpful teaching environment. That was, it was a negative lesson. It was an environment where everyone was constantly being put under the spotlight by the head of the lab, right? And I know, I came to realise later that some of the women in the lab really struggled with the way that the lab was run in a very domineering manner. And why do you think he did that? Did you think he was trying to make it tougher for the environment that we've got currently in academia? Look, I think he was reflecting the training that he had himself. Very old school. And he was a medic, you know, and... I mean, I, I've seen this, I was in hospital um, getting my appendix out and I saw the, the senior consultant come through with his retinue of students and discuss another patient over the top of me and literally use the same kind of humiliation tactics to get the medical students to say what they knew about what was going on. You know, I've, I've seen that stuff happen. It was old school bullying basically was the way to rough up the, the students and, and I, I guess make them tougher. I know from my experience, this is very old school kind of idea and doesn't always work. In fact, many people, it actually just puts them off. Exactly. Yeah. Using humiliation as a motivation tactic, essentially. The fear of humiliation as as the motivator to, to get people to learn. Now, there was a whole lot of stuff that went down that shouldn't have happened in that lab. For various circumstances, I was not on especially good terms with my supervisor for quite a long time. I almost left. I made a decision to stay on the basis that I was just going to do it myself. So I became very independent. And so that helped me. I, I was forced to become very independent in my PhD. So basically what you're saying is those bullying tactics meant that you had to either choose to acknowledge them and play the game, for instance, or just choose to be quite independent and do the PhD yourself? Not quite, because all of that stuff still went on. I remember in my first PhD seminar where I was struggling to explain something properly. He just put his hand up and said over the top of me, now, Sharky, you've confused everyone. I think you better go back and start again. This is in front of the whole department to his own student, right? So, so all of this stuff continued to go on. However, due to various circumstances, he withdrew and I was left very much on my own. I was not in favour. He tried to control the lab through basically making the whole lab revolve around him and even his family and whatever he was doing. So if you refused to be a part of that, you ended up on the outer and, and I essentially refused to be a part of playing that game. Wow. <laughs> So that kind of brings us to this idea of leaders that were so completely narcissistic that the world basically revolves around them and anyone who doesn't revolve around them then is on the outer. And, you know, I mean, we can kind of go into that in a bit more detail, but there is this certain idea that your senior leaders, your 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 supervisors really affect the direction of your career and they can affect it in either a positive or a negative way. They can help propel your career forward or they can actually hamper it quite badly. And it sounds to me like you're a victim of the hampering of career as such. So it did in a way in that the choice of my project was framed by him, which wasn't a great project. That was the downside. But the upside is that as, as a character, one of the, I am motivated by someone telling me that I can't do something. 
Uh, so that was one. The other is that after a couple of episodes, I did decide that I never wanted to be in a situation where he could humiliate me again. So I made sure that I was always one step or two steps ahead of him and I was totally in charge of my project. Which is a great um, thing from your character point of view. Can you imagine somebody else in that position, for instance, another female who could not handle being humiliated? I mean, I'm sure that there was many people who didn't move on from that lab and maybe dropped out mainly because of the humiliation and his bullying tactics. No, and then, then that absolutely happened. And in fact, I'm ashamed to say that the way that he ran the lab is that we were all aligned. So if someone was out of line, they were isolated, essentially. And I came out of an honours year where I was very successful. And, you know, I was a part of his machine. I thought I was walking on water. I was, I'd done such a great job. I was going to be wonderful. I was a, a golden child for a while. And so I was actually a part of his oppressive regime, if that makes sense. And it took me a long time. And, and actually some friends who, who were in the lab who gently pointed out to me that I'd become an asshole. <laughs> I don't know if you could say that. but That's friends. But, Thank you. <laughs> But um, yeah, that I just become arrogant and it really wasn't the way that it was being presented. So these were really important sort of things for, for me to understand. And, and, you know, bearing in mind, I was just finishing honours at that. I was young. I really don't know anything about anything in the world, right? And, and I was still working out who on earth I was and what was important to me. I didn't know I was going to have a career in science. Actually, after my honours year, I thought I'd just work for a few years as an RA that seemed like that would be fine, right? Mm. So that was my first experience. There's a lot of things that weren't great that happened. Having said that, there were some scientific abilities that my supervisor had that were fantastic. He was incredibly good at constructing a line of logic. So a logical sequence of facts or ideas so that you could make a compelling argument for why you wanted to do your science. And then if you'd done some experiments, why they were important. And I remember noticing that even as an honor student, it's one of the reasons I wanted to do honours with him is because he laid things out so beautifully clearly. And I like to think that that's something I've been able to work on through my career. I recognise the power of being able to make that really clear, logical argument. Yeah. And that's just so important now. It's so important for grant applications. It's so important for writing papers, for, for everything. Um, he was also an exceptional speaker. And I learned how to talk from him as mm -hmm. well. And, you know, there were many quite formative things about things that he taught me about a way of doing science, which came from his very good training too, I'm sure. Yeah. So there was some real positives there, but there was a lot of darkness in the way that the lab was run. And I was lucky that my personality was such that I could deal with those negative motivators. You know, I'm a contradictory enough character that that was okay. <laughs> it also was an okay setting. My first postdoc, the person who I went to work with was actually known as a hard taskmaster. And so that was in Oxford. I was sort of warned that he was very tough, but actually the one thing that he wasn't, he didn't have this, um, this variable personality. So I always knew where I was with that mentor. He was very directed with his time. You would go into his office if you had a problem, you would get a slot of 15 to 20 minutes. There would be one problem you could talk about. There was no room for endless discussion. You'd walk out with an experiment. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly directed. He could also be very tough. Lab meetings were really tough. And I saw if somebody said something that was wrong and patently wrong, he would just cut them off in the middle of their whatever. It was incredibly blunt, but it wasn't done with any... I always had the sense with my PhD supervisor that there was some amount of him building his own ego by standing on others. Mm -hmm. you know, he, had to, he had to have control. My postdoc mentor was just seemed to be unaware of the impact that he was having on people. Yeah. For him, everything was just about 
let's just get the job done efficiently. Yeah. And actually that was a relief to me because I always knew where I stood with him. Mm. Right. I always knew that it was about the science. It made me check what I was going to say a little more carefully. But the other thing that I realized, and this is something that is also very important the way I do science and the way I want people to interact with me in my lab or whatever, is I started to realize that if you were completely open and you said, I don't know the answer, or I don't understand why this experiment worked, as long as you were, you genuinely made an attempt to understand it and you thought about all of the sensible things and you could say, well, here's what's happened. This is what I think. Actually, that was okay. It was okay not to know. It was okay to have that discussion. What wasn't okay is to have an experiment that didn't make sense, present it as if it did make sense yes. and try and put it under the carpet because he just had zero tolerance for that at all. Okay. Um, so, you know, that's a, quite a logical idea behind science if you don't understand Yeah, it. but it's an incredibly hard one. You actually have to have, it's probably not a bad time to talk about confidence. You have to have a different sort of self-confidence to put your dirty laundry out there and say, look, I might be wrong. This is everything I know. This is what the data is. I had this great idea, but it doesn't look like my idea is right. But this is how I did my experiment and this is how it's come out. And a lot of people mistake the confidence that you need in science or the way, the way I view it. And I call it quite a brittle confidence where you can stand up and give a absolutely beautiful talk mm. where everything is flawless. But then you find as soon as you start picking a thread, well, everything is not quite what it seems. And yeah. underneath all of that, there's no depth underneath it, if that makes sense. And I try and avoid this, try to have my lab meetings to be open so that people can say, I've got this result, I don't understand it. Or yeah. even I'm doing this thing that everyone else is doing in the lab and it's not working for me. It's amazing how often you find out that actually then someone else puts up their hand and says, oh, actually that didn't work for me either. And then you work out that a reagent's off or whatever. But even at the level of lab meetings, a lot of people feel like they need to have this bulletproof facade. You can understand that bulletproof facade given the amount of bullying that happens by the sounds of it in science. And this is systemic and this is something that, you know, you and I want to discuss is why equity is so difficult at those higher levels and what are the issues and why are the rafts so incredibly skewed towards males in leadership positions? If we have a look at the grant outcomes, for instance, the NHMRC gender gaps is just they're huge. At the early career research levels, for instance, in the biological sciences, there's quite a, a lot of evidence to suggest that females start out as an early career researcher in the majority, but it quite clearly changes over. In fact, the graphs are very dynamic in, in that in mid-career, those numbers switch from females to males. And it gets to this point where your senior principal research fellows, they're 80% men. And you can understand that if this system, particularly the system of bullying, is basically set up to put down all the people who are working and only reward those people who are self-confident. No wonder there's this kind of massive dropout that happens. I mean, can we discuss how that's affected you through your career? Yeah, so I think bullying is only one part of that. How is it that we have confidence in ourselves? How is it that we learn to deal with an environment? And that's, you know, science is a, a deeply critical environment. There is no point in doing science if you're not prepared to accept and give criticism. Right? That, that's how the method works. That's how it works, right? We, we try to publish our papers and we don't, no one gets a free pass. 
Yeah. I've heard Nobel laureates complain about having literally having their papers rejected by peer reviewers. And this is actually a really important thing. How do we manage teaching in our lab? If I go back to, to that, how, how do I manage that so that I help build confidence while, and, and you have to do that while exposing people to criticism, right? They've got to give them resilience. So we right. need to build confidence and resilience to be able to handle that criticism. Right. But the problem is that you can't reset your lab meeting every time you have a new honor student join or whatever. There's got to be a continuous culture that works, even though for different people in different parts of their journey, that culture might be quite confronting. And that's tough. And, and again, the way that I do that is trying to take away little bits of what worked and what didn't work from all the other labs. And that's been a huge advantage to me, as I said before, is, is working for different people and seeing the way that they mm. manage things. And hopefully being able to have honest conversations with people along the way about how that's affected them or, or seeing how that's affected them. Yeah. Um, it sounds to me like the honesty and openness is something that you've pretty much taken away from the negative impact of not having that. And it's certainly something that will work in your favour moving forward. But can we also kind of go into then, you know, other things that you've learned along the way, other things that, I mean, obviously we've seen that bullying is a big issue in science and I believe that it has been for a long time and it still is. Oh, and it, and it remains. And, and there's some terrible behaviour you see at conferences, at drinks after conferences. I've been in situations where I felt really uncomfortable about some of the things that have been said to women that I know at meetings. And I failed to act and to do something that was meaningful. I didn't know what to do in that. I, I was so shocked that I actually didn't know what to say or do that would be useful. And actually everything that I thought I could do, I felt would actually make the situation worse. And, and I don't know. You know, that, that's one particular incident. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, it's not just science, right? Anywhere where there is a significant amount of networking that happens offline, there's the potential. And all you need is one or two individuals or institutions where a few individuals come from where this stuff is okay. And that will become the vibe at a particular event. So are um, you talking about sexist comments or? Um, yep. yep. Okay. Yep. So why do you think that you weren't able to? stand up and say something i mean you know well what do you do when there's three or so reasonably um drunk males making the comments where i was stuck between people and so the target of the comments was also stuck there i spoke to the person afterwards and they were like you know what well, was no big deal and actually she was quite resilient to the whole thing but I, I just couldn't believe it was happening yeah but you know do you think she's resilient to that whole thing because she's had to be because she's been put in that situation many times before and let's face it nah, those kind of sexist comments have to be washed off her yeah well you know we, we always say this boys will be boys stuff i don't think it's it's okay right. it's not okay i know it's not okay but I just can't say that I, I was in that situation and, you know, I stomped my fist down on the table and brought them all into line. These were all people who were more senior to me. Senior to you. So now that um, you're more senior then, I mean, so you just felt that you weren't in a position of seniority to be able to say something. But now that you are in a position of seniority, I mean, would you have done something different? Would you have up with that kind of behaviour now? I, I don't know. I'm not really good at confrontation. That's the truth. And I don't know whether I've got the courage. What, what can I say? The answer is I should have, and I should be able to do it. Well, um, an honest would, answer. Would, I'd like to see you do it. but <laughs> Yeah, no, and I would too. And I think it may depend on the situation. It would depend on who the people are. And it shouldn't, right? It should be an absolute. It should be very clear what the right behavior is. But 
I doubt there's too many people who are listening to this who haven't seen something like that mm. and not known what to do and not always intervened. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can always say lots of things that you could do in hindsight, but it's good to see that you recognised it in the first place. So I guess the next step is to be able to act on it. But, um, I mean, there's less tolerance as well for those kind of sexist remarks, especially in a professional environment. It still happens. Trust me, it still happens. But um, certainly... Oh, oh, it doesn't. There's all sorts of behaviours that get wheeled out. And again, I've been reminded that there's toxic attitudes that just hide everywhere. And even some of the people who you think are supporting gender equity don't have a great understanding of it or bring out some of the some of the old excuses as to why you don't have female representation. Oh, you know, we can't have this woman because everyone will know that, that she's just a token woman. It would be worse for her if we were to put someone on. Whereas that's actually not the point. Mm. Recognising that in decision-making bodies, having a diversity of views is actually a virtue in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not everyone has to be there because they've earned the right to be there, for example. Effective decision-making requires a variety of voices. Exactly. I mean, because they don't have exactly the qualifications that you're looking for doesn't necessarily mean they can't have an equitable voice. Well, no, and that's important. And and actually, I've also seen behaviour change when these bodies go from being all men. You just put one woman in the room, all of a sudden it becomes more civil, which is stupid, right? Why do blokes treat each other in this way? I mean, I've never been a very blokey bloke, so I've never understood that culture. But I know that it exists and it does strike me as odd in this day and age that simply putting one woman in a room will change the dynamic. It ramps up the professionalism in the room. Mm, Interesting. So let's talk about that then. In your position now as head of immunology at John Curtin, tell me what it's like now. I mean, you took over from Corolla, who was one of the only female leaders in that area. I mean, what's the feeling in the room at the moment? In terms of leadership, is there much onus on making sure that you have female leaders or potential female leaders in the pipeline? I mean, where do we go from there? Yeah, look, and I think this is where the conversation turns a little bit to recruitment. So to be quite clear, I've probably got the coziest head of department job in Australia because largely I'm a cheerleader and a form filler. The majority of people in my department, in terms of the conditions of their positions, that's negotiated with the director of the school. The department was very set in terms of different groups having their own independent direction. So I don't really tell people what to do. I mean, the idea that it would be of any value for me to be a boss to someone like Corolla is just a joke, right? You know, I've got a lot of really terrific researchers in my department and some of my job is is essentially to get out of their way and and do what they need to do. Having said that, I do sit on the school executive and it's given me the opportunity to look around the school and work out just how few female level E's there are, how many level E males there are, watching recent recruitment rounds, seeing how difficult it is actually to recruit women to positions in the school in general. You And part of it comes back to, you know, if you're doing experimental basic biomedical science, which is what I do, it's an expensive business and you have to fund that somehow. And that means that you have to be able to get grant funding. And this is where 
the incredibly competitive situation we find ourselves in at the moment in Australia makes such a big difference, right? Because if you're going to hire someone and give them the job of, of running their own laboratory and starting their own research agenda, you have to make sure that between the resources you can give them as a startup and the trajectory that they've demonstrated, that that's going to be an ongoing proposition. You're not setting someone up to fail. Right. And we don't have resources to indefinitely support laboratories. And so it's bizarre. There's a saying that I've heard around the place particularly in relation to fellows. So, for example, some places you could have a decision that if someone manages to get an HMRC fellowship, then they should automatically get some kind of continuing appointment. The argument against that is always that we don't want the NHMRC to make our hiring decisions for us, right? right? But the odd thing is that we do, (laughs) right? Because if someone's not able to get grants or hasn't been demonstrated their ability to get grants, we don't hire them, actually. Yeah, so this sounds to me like there's this real systemic issue with science in Australia or gender equity in Australia. I mean, it's not as if you don't want to have an equal amount of women. The issue is that, first of all, they're not even in the pipeline because they can't seem to get these larger grants or these senior principal research fellowships. They can't get them because 80% of men are getting them. But the, the women aren't even getting to the point where they're applying for them. Yeah, you can see where we lose them. So the, the ECR... point where they can apply for these senior positions because they don't get past this mid-career dropout, right? And a lot of that is because there's a lot of competition going on. Perhaps they don't get the boost that men do. They're also having children at this stage and so perhaps they don't have... Yep. You know, there's lots of little things. And also this system of these senior research fellows, they're... They're all men. They're 80% men, but they are the ones that keep on getting these grants. And so... Well, no, no, they're going to. But to be clear, right, so we have to understand what our funding system does or what it rewards. And frankly, the funding system rewards self-interest. That's the number one thing to understand, right? We do reasonably well in terms of percentages for the early career grants, but these grants are largely going to people who are still, if they're not actually postdocs in someone's lab, they are heavily tied to a mentor still. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the work that is published by these people will have a senior person as the, in the senior authorship position on those papers. Uh, and that person's probably going to be a white man. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and that's because you know who those people are, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you have this massive dropout, but, but we know that there's a problem in the career in general. That's where the bottleneck is in the career. The hardest thing to do is to launch yourself and become independent. And so for me, I was kind of lucky. I did some long overseas stints. So I was overseas for nearly six years. I came back to a lab at QIMR in Australia and I was fortunate enough to get my own fellowship that enabled me to do some work up there that was a little different to the work that most people in the lab were doing. And so by the time I was publishing my stuff from there, I was already a little bit differentiated. And then I was really fortunate to get the job at ANU, a teaching research position at ANU. And that was, I guess, a leap of faith because I was entirely by myself then. Even when I moved in, the room that eventually ended up being my virus culture room was a minus 80 room. Actually, we met probably shortly after I came to ANU and you would have seen the, the position. I that we, It was me by myself in a room trying to buy stuff and learn how, you know, I had to start everything from scratch. And I'd like to say at that point, through points in my career there where I was apparently completely independent, I did have, I guess, patronage is the right word or sponsorship because there were people elsewhere in immunology in Australia who encouraged me. Yeah. There were people who 
who said, hey, I've got a spare slot in grants I can apply for this year. Have you got a great idea we could collaborate on? Literally, that happened. Mm -hmm. And then they were really decent in making sure that I got a good share of the money that came out of that grant. So this is a senior... This is a very senior person. person Um, Basically lifted your career. Yep. They were at another institution and probably that grant rescued me. Yeah. Okay. So it's really important to have these senior people who lift you up. In the absence of that, how do you think you would have gone? It's hard to say. I might be um, spending most of my day teaching. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Here's the thing. So I didn't have huge ambitions when I started. I wanted to run a small lab, do the stuff that I was interested in doing. One of the things that has not been perhaps the best for my career is that I'm stubborn about the stuff that I find interesting and it's not always very fashionable. So, you know, I do my stuff. I think it's nice, but a lot of it ends up not being cited really well because there's just not many of us interested. Virology at the moment is very interesting right now. Everyone's... everyone's... Oh, look, it's hugely interesting. But, you know, one of the things I've reflected over the last few months is watching people scramble at places trying to put infrastructure together so that people can do infectious work when at least most of the time in my career, I've been trying to convince people to have appropriate containment so I can use equipment that I've actually supported financially for. And then I find out that I can't do it because my stuff is contaminated with viruses and no one will touch it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, that's just how it is, right. That there is fashion and stuff in science. And um, if you want to go back to that stage in my career, again, it's when I had small kids. Now, I've got to own this. Yeah, I've got to own this. So my wife, she refers to herself as a non-practicing scientist. So I guess that's like a, like a lapsed Catholic or something. But we met at Oxford as postdocs and we both did postdocs at NIH. But when we came back to Australia, the whole two body problem was difficult. And the decision we made was that, you know, if one of us got a great job, that would probably be the person who would work and the other person would look after kids and stuff. And you know, for a variety of reasons, that was probably always going to be me. Some of that was to do with some poor mentors that my wife had had. Mm. And that's how it came to pass. So at that point, when there were small kids in the house, it did impact my career, but I can't complain. I had somebody who was staying home with the kids. Yeah, well, very, very, because the rest of it is, right? (laughs) No, no, it is. And I have to own that, right? Because that made all sorts of things possible for me. Yeah. So she basically Um, was able to support you from a family perspective so that you could go on and have the career that you needed to support the family. So it's like a circular economy kind of thing. It is, it is. But then on the downside of all that, though, is that you only have one person bringing an income in the house. So the pressure to succeed in that career becomes higher. And quite literally, my promotions essentially track increases in the cost of my children (laughs) to to the point that our family has stayed solvent basically because of my career has been able to progress at a rate that's fast enough to keep up with the kids growing up and needing to do tennis lessons or, you know, music lessons, all all that kind of stuff that you want to do. So your kids have what they want. And so there was extra pressure, you know, for me to actually be successful. And that probably pushed me harder. It probably made me not such a great father for various times, you know, when my kids were small, because every family has to do a deal about how they're going to run stuff, right? But in terms of where I ended up in my career, absolutely, I had a huge advantage by being able to, to have somebody who makes the housework. Yeah, of course. Uh, and do you think then, I'm going to go there, do you think yep. that you just wanted to have your own little lab you didn't really want to be the head of department it's kind of been almost it's a job that you've fallen into do you think it's a it's a white male privilege that you've gotten to that position um some of it has to be right 
I've, I've never, I've never been the sort of person who, you know, goes to the top rank position in any grant application. I'm the guy who's always fallen just over the line, just often enough to keep going. That's how I see myself. And I really struggle to see myself as being, you know, one of the big people. I guess I kind of am now, but I've kind of got there by default. That's how I feel. And to be quite clear, you know, this year I just fell below the line by the smallest amount. So the funding I was hoping to get failed and it failed by such a tiny margin that essentially one score by one of five people would have made a difference. So this time I just fell below. The stress of this funding, though, I mean, you know, it, it, this is kind of shaping everything, isn't it, at the moment? Oh, absolutely. And the other problem in, in basic biomedical science is that it's expensive to do, right? And if you stop doing it for a year because you miss out with your grants for a whole year, basically everything can grind to a halt. So the fear of the whole thing collapsing is huge. And if you work at a university, if you're not being useful to the university, well, why are they going to keep you? And it's even more brutal at the MRIs. One of the reasons I applied for the job at ANU was that I was up at QIMR and it seemed pretty clear that if you didn't keep the funding coming in for yourself, it wasn't only your lab that was going to fall over, you wouldn't be able to pay your mortgage. And as a single breadwinner for the family, that was a precarious position. So I really sighed, there was a huge sigh of relief when I got the job at ANU because at last there were things other than just my research that meant that I could be useful for my institution. You know, I could do teaching. I've ended up doing some leadership stuff, right? All of that stuff just gave me a little bit more security that at least if I didn't get a grant, it wasn't my mortgage payment on the line. But for so many people in medical research, that's exactly what the situation is. Yeah. And partly my trajectory in becoming bigger and my ambitions being bigger is driven by the fact that it's become so much more competitive to get funding. Yes. So you have to continually strive to be bigger. It's not okay just to be, you know, I'm just that guy who's interested in one thing right? In how CD8 T cells, for example, see a particular virus, right? I've got to be broader than that. I've got to have a bigger agenda. Some of the things that I do now are a direct result of the stuff that I was interested in doing being so dull to everyone else, I couldn't get it funded. So I moved sideways and I've found other things that people did think were interesting, right? But as that's happened, my agenda has broadened as well. And I've filled a much bigger position. And I guess I feel there was a point in time where I, the, the sort of comments that I got back on my grant started to change in such a way and the people started treating me in such a way that I felt like I'd fallen over some magic line that all of a sudden I was established and I'd proven myself. I didn't have to justify in my grant applications that I could actually do some of the core things that my lab does, my core competencies. Those comments stopped. And I think that happens to a lot of us. But for me, it was really clear. It was just one year when those sorts of comments started to stop. And I seemed to be given the benefit of doubt that if I wanted to do something ambitious, people recognised that I could do it. It took a long time, but I see it in the frustration of the younger researchers in my department. And even, you know, there's this thing that happens for a lot of people who've done really successful postdocs and they're publishing fantastic papers in great journals and they get their own lab and the quality of their work is no different, but all of a sudden they're struggling to get the publications in those same journals. And for some of them, it's a huge blow to their confidence. For others, they are confident enough to basically say it's the fault of the editors and the reviewers, you know. But again, it's another one of these beatings that everyone takes. And for those for whom confidence doesn't come easy, it's harder. And that's often more women than men, right? So and it's that's just the, at the point where they're trying to push forward and have their own careers that these blows happen, a number of different blows from a number of different sources, right? And then they've got to be able to withstand it and move forward. At the same time, when you're having kids and you've got a, you know, a mixed agendas, 
very difficult to kind of push forward and go through that without some extra help. You know, for instance, having those, those people who are going to sponsor you and build your career up. It's really difficult to do. I, I agree. That's really important. And again, to really name the crunch point, it's this point where you are becoming independent such that your productivity is no longer directly improving someone else's career. Yeah. I want to point out right now that this is one of the major points that I really want to drive home is that this happens for men and females. It happened to you. It happened to every mid-career researcher that I know, that I've known for many, many years. You know, they reach this crunch point where they have to push harder and they have to get over the mental hump that they've got to go through to kind of move into that next phase of their career. And it's quite clear that women need more help at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. They do. There are still assumptions about how serious women are about their career sometimes, which is completely unfair. I think the whole imposter syndrome thing is incredibly difficult. And a lot of women have that. I don't have the core confidence that I would generally portray where people who would know me or have met me at meetings probably think I'm very confident all the time, but I've always doubted and I constantly pinch myself. I think the last time I really felt I was all over it, I was totally, you know, in control of my domain was when I was finishing my PhD because I ended up doing that quite independently. But I remember, you know, I would still pinch myself walking around Oxford that I was a post, how on earth did that happen? And the same thing at NIH and, and even, you know, I've got the job at ANU. I remember sitting in my new office thinking, who on earth thought it was a good idea to put me in front of a class of undergraduates and expect <laughs> me to teach them? You know, it's like, like, what a crazy idea, right? What you're saying is that, you know, this imposter syndrome that, of course, is a big thing, you know, why women don't seem to be moving forward. You as a man are also dealing with the imposter syndrome as well. It's not just a women only thing. And that, You just have to kind of bluff your way through it, in fact. Yeah, I I guess one of the things that, and again, so what I've read about this and the way it affects women's career quite often is that they don't put themselves forward for stuff because of fear of failure. And I think, again, it's a lucky quirk of my personality that the way that I've dealt with my imposter syndrome sometimes is to say, well, it's about time I worked out whether I was going to fail or not. So an opportunity comes and I'm just going to go for it because, well, I might as well just get on with it and get kicked out of science now and I won't have to keep pretending, right? So let's do the experiment. The way I think about it is to do the experiment, right? I'll find out if I can't cope. They call it the Peter Principle, and that is that everyone is promoted to their own level of incompetence. Right? So, so, so you continue to rise basically until you can't do your job very well. and That's where you stay until you retire. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I've been really lucky that that personality trait makes me take on that insecurity. And I guess what I've been lucky about too, is that for most of my career, I felt that if I did get chewed up and spat out of science, that I'd be able to find something else to do Yeah. and it wouldn't kill me. And I think a lot of people are terrified about what would happen for them if they weren't in science. Yeah. And we need to do a better job of showing those career paths too. Yeah. Anyway. Like looking into other career paths so that people have the confidence to be able to take the risks, for instance, and sort of know that if they don't win, if they fail, there's still another path for them. Right. And do you really want to do this science business? You know, it is a brutal profession to be in. Mm -hmm. And again, it's something that I struggle with. I'm recruiting a student or a postdoc in my lab. What do I tell them about what the career is? How do I motivate them, but be honest with them? Mm. And that's hard. But overall, I think the thing that you identified earlier, which is this incredibly hyper-competitive funding situation, which in the end drives nearly all of our decisions, actually. 
the universities and the MRIs could actually fix the problem if they wanted to put a substantial amount of money and basically say, we're going to underwrite the careers of X number of mid-career women and we're going to take them out of the funding system and we're going to do that for a decade. Yeah, wow. Right? That would be transformative. It'd be totally transformative, but I don't see it happening. I've sat in front of my vice chancellor and been held accountable for why my department doesn't bring enough external income into the university. So everyone views it as an entrepreneurial thing. If we were to do this for women, we want your business plan to show us that the following 10 years, those women are going to bring in more money than we paid out on them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if we chose the right people, the answer would be very clear. We could do that, but that's a very long-term plan. We're not really good at long-term plans, are we? <laughs> and um, while we run our external grant funding the way that we do, we're really kind of stuck in their hands. Exactly. And I don't want to say that to say that I have no power in the situation. I can't make changes or I can't push for better equity outcomes. We all have to do everything we can in our own sphere of influence. But it's enormously frustrating to me that there's this thing that hangs over us, which is our external funding systems and the way that they work and the way that they advantage certain environments. And even, you know, if you look at the progress through this change that we've just had in the way NHMRC's funding is being done, everyone is in there pushing their vested interest. Right, the MRIs will have a vested interest. Every particular institution runs in a particular way and they would like the external funding to work in a way that works for them. One real point of caution that worries me right now is we're moving from a situation where so peer review is flawed and it doesn't give us outcomes that are really always based on merit, no matter how much we like to say that's the case. But we're now going where there's a huge amount of new money in the system through MRFF, which is being distributed in ways that are really non-transparent and in some cases seem to be very overtly political yes and it seems well you could look at it one way and you could say well if the whole thing comes down to the women of people in the department they could choose to make sure that they were funding women Mm. but you know that's not going to be the case because it's the people who are currently in power who are in the ear of power yes so you know we're at a time now and particularly with the financial pressures that everyone's under there is going to be structural change in our sector this could be a time that we could start achieving that but I don't know how that's going to play out. How do we capitalise on this moment? How do we make it happen? This is one of the major things that are holding women back is this systemic sexism that's in the current system. So until we address this, you know, we can all talk around the point, but until we address the whole way the system is set up, I really don't know if too much is going to change. It's difficult. And even if we could remove implicit bias tomorrow, even if we could get every decision to be made perfectly equitably, even if we could accurately assess relative to opportunity, which is what NHMRC says we need to do. So that is to really take into account the impact of looking after kids that most women have. Even if we did that tomorrow, it's going to take so long because it's still a hyper-competitive situation. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you can sleep one hour less a night, you've got an advantage over someone. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people with small kids who are sleeping many hours less a night, but it's not because they're out writing grants or doing science. (laughs) You know, it's because they're looking after kids. And that doesn't do much for your competitive edge. No, it sounds to me like that we need to put into place some kind of guidelines. Um, I mean, there has been some progression, the latest kind of NHMRC changes, but I think it sounds to me like it's small compared to what needs to happen in order to make a massive change. Yeah, and look, the other thing that worries me, part of this is to do with COVID-19, but at the moment, 
all of the NHMRC rounds, there are no longer any committees meeting at all. Everything is done by people scoring in private behind their own computers at their own desks. Yeah. And that's for all of the grants. And I really fear for that because although the NHMRC has some stats saying that the committee meetings don't make much of a difference, I think they make a massive difference because they hold people accountable for the way they're thinking and, and what they're saying. When you're involved in that corporate decision-making and you're having to make a case for someone's grant in front of your peers, you've got to do that job well. You know, if you think that someone's giving someone a poor track record score or something and you look at, at what they've achieved and then you realise what their per opportunity statement is about, and if you don't think that's taken seriously, you can actually say something. But if everyone does it for themselves behind their own desk, then HMRC's lost that ability to try and affect change. Well, there's a lot of things that we need to tackle here. But at the moment, David, I think we've, uh, <laughs> we've identified the issues. It'd be really nice to be able to speak to some people from HMRC and see how they're actually going to be tackling these issues. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, David, and, um, and yeah, thank you for joining us for the podcast series. We'll see you again soon. Okay, see you. Thanks a lot. Bye.